friends, welcome, 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 welcome to the Joyful Courage Podcast, a place where we tease apart what it means to be a conscious parent and a conscious human on the wild ride of parenting. I'm your host, Casey O'Rourke. I am a positive discipline lead trainer, a parent coach, and a mom walking the path right next to you as I imperfectly raise my own two teenagers. Joyful Courage is all about grit, growth on the parenting journey, relationships that provide a sense of connection and meaning, and influential tools that support everyone in being their best selves. Today's show is an interview. I encourage you to listen for how grit shows up as my guest and I tease things apart. I love the conversation that I'm sharing today. I recorded it way back in September, and I know that you're going to really appreciate it as well. I just want to give a special shout out. Big thanks to Joyful Courage Convert on iTunes, who wrote Game Changer for a Mom of Tween and Teens. Finding Casey's podcast has been a game changer. Moving into the tween years has been a challenge and really caught me off guard. I needed this so much, still do. This podcast, Casey's workshops, and her coaching have made a huge difference for me and my daughter. The podcast content and interviews are fantastic. Casey is genuine, caring, realistic, and motivating. Highly recommend you listen to Joyful Courage. Thank you so much for leaving that review. I love knowing that what I'm creating matters to you. Thank you everyone for being here, for listening in. Enjoy the show. Hi friends, welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Diana Hill. She is a clinical psychologist and co-author of ACT Daily Journal, Get Unstuck and live fully with acceptance and commitment therapy. She is a co-host of the popular podcast, Psychologist Off the Clock, and offers regular teachings in compassion and act through Insight LA and Mindful Heart programs. Through her online teachings, executive coaching, clinical supervision, and private therapy practice, Diana encourages clients to build psychological flexibility so that they can live more meaningful and fulfilling lives. Diana practices what she preaches in her daily life as mom of two, homesteader, and yoga teacher. Hi, Dr. Hill. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. I'm excited to talk with you today. Well, so many things intrigue me about your bio. And can we first start with the fact that you are a homesteader? Yes. (laughs) Tell me more. I... (laughs) But the very first movie that I ever saw in the movie theater was The Wilderness Family, which is, by the way, listeners, hilarious to go back and watch now. Um, It's very unrealistic, but it was my favorite movie. And it's this family moving out into the woods and making it on their own. So tell me about homesteading and how you found yourself homesteading. Yeah, you know, it really came out of this belief uh, from actually a biomechanist I follow called a uh, named Katie Bowman. And it's a belief of stacking your life and stacking your life is all about how you can build many different values-based activities into your life at once and really live in all of them. So my uh, partner and I, we love to move. We love, we're very active and mm-hmm. we also really care about the environment. And we had kids that we wanted to be closely, you know, it related to the environment and know where their food comes from. So we started to stack our lives and we have chickens and we raise bees and we have a garden and vegetables and, you know, grow a lot of our own food. And let me tell you during COVID, it was a lifesaver because Mm. we felt the sense of, we can just hunker down if we need to, we even roast our own coffee. Uh, So it's, um, it's a wonderful way to live. And I think that it's been really enriching as a parent to just be able to have our kids fully involved in like the food system and get a sense of, you know, that it's not always so easy to to get all of the things that we need in life, we got to work a little bit for them, which is also a, a value we want to teach our kids. So what's the difference? Sorry, listeners, we are going to get on to other topics, but I'm just intrigued. So what's okay. the difference between being a homesteader versus like you're someone who has a garden? Oh, you know, I think that anyone could call themselves a homesteader versus a gardener. I mean, it's just probably more semantics. I think of it as for us as homesteading is that we have a lot of different aspects of the way that we live that are self-sustained, right? Mm, so yeah. um, that's part of it. Uh, but I also think that part of our homestead is that it's very uh, interconnected. It's like an ecosystem, right? Mm. So 
the food that we don't eat goes to our chickens. The chicken manure goes into our garden. Our garden is the food for our bees and our bees are the Mm -hmm. food for our trees. And, you know, so there's a little bit of that aspect to it of just like having it be much sort of biodynamically oriented, but Yeah. yeah. Cool. How old are your kids? I have an eight-year-old and 11-year-old. I always have to think, so they keep on, seem to get older. I know, (laughs) it's weird. Yeah, eight and 11. Yeah, two boys. Eight and 11, two boys. Awesome. Cool. Okay, thank you. Thank you for indulging my curiosity around homesteading. And now on to the work that you do. So talk a little bit about acceptance and commitment therapy. What is that? And do you call it ACT or do you call it ACT in the acronym? Yeah, it's called ACT. It's It's one word. And man, people are pretty rigid about that. <laughs> Call okay. it back to not ACD. Okay. It's actually all about not being rigid. It's about psychological flexibility. And ACT is a modern evidence-based cognitive behavioral approach to really living well and flourishing. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, psychology has been focused on disorders and diseases and uh, you know mental illness, but really the field has been shifting over the past decade or so to what is it that leads people to live fulfilling lives, right? Mm-hmm. And how, what are some of the processes that are involved in really having a satisfying life and being functional in your life and even thriving in your life? And so ACT is about that. And it's designed around a concept called psychological flexibility, mm-hmm. which is your ability to stay present, conscious, aware in the moment and open up to the fact that life is uncomfortable, that there is pain is is part of living and still orient yourself towards what you care about most, your values that are chosen and personal to you in the moment. So if you think about parenting, that's a place where it sort of requires a lot of psychological flexibility to be an effective parent. A lot, especially (laughs) teenagers. Yeah, especially, yeah. Yeah. So how is it different? And I was asking before I hit record, I'm excited to hear more. How is it different? My listeners have gotten used to probably hearing me talk about DBT, dialectic behavior therapy that I'm familiar with through experience and going through it with my daughter. How is ACT different than DBT? Yeah, they're sort of sisters and that they're both cognitive behavioral therapies. They're both considered what's called third wave therapies. So they incorporate a lot of acceptance into Mm -hmm. their approach. It's not just about change, but actually acceptance is some of the sweet sweet parts of um, ACT and DBT that allows change to happen. But the differences actually started out in DBT when I was uh, doing my dissertation and I did my dissertation work in dialectical behavior therapy for eating disorders and Mm -hmm. actually studied with learned under Marsha Linehan when I, awesome. I, I she wasn't my mentor, but learned from her some DBT practices. But the difference is, is that DBT is more oriented towards emotion dysregulation and uh, interpersonal dysregulation. It's really specifically for certain types of disorders and, and struggles that people have. Whereas ACT is something that can be used not only for anxiety and depression and even emotion dysregulation, but is also being used for performance enhancement. It's being used with uh, Olympic athletes. It's even being used in things like promoting people to make changes around climate change and behaviors around that. So ACT is really uh, much more of a philosophy and approach that has specific processes associated with it. And DBT is much more of a program that teaches specific skills. Yeah. Those skills were super helpful for us. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I, when I used to do DBT groups, I used to think, why aren't they teaching this? In yes. This is incredible. Yes, me too. Like should be co- like core, you know, freshman year or first year of middle school. You know, every kid should be going through the DBT binder and learning all of those tools because they're so, 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 so useful. I felt the same way. This podcast is sponsored by Factor. Are you old enough to remember TV dinners? They came in those tin trays and each part of the meal had its own little compartment. I remember eating those and watching Happy Days, followed by Three's Company, maybe a little Laverne and Shirley. I am that old. Well, the situation has been totally upgraded by Factor. Factor makes delicious, ready-to-eat meals. And unlike those quick meals of the past, every 
meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including meals that are calorie smart, protein plus, and keto if that's your thing. Also, there's more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. In my last order, we got red chicken chili tamale bowls and Italian sausage pizza casserole, as well as other delicious meals that my family loved. Plus, there's breakfast and smoothies and all sorts of other add-ons to make life simpler while also keeping it healthy. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. They've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Right now, head to factormeals.com slash joyful50 and use code joyful50 to get 50% off. That's code joyful50 at factormeals.com slash joyful50 to get 50% off. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So talk a bit. So you said that there's these um, kind of core processes, and I love what you were talking about with psychological flexibility because, you know, it varies for everyone. But I think if you haven't, if you make it to the teen years and you haven't had an experience where your child is you know, showing up in a way that is bringing up (laughs) all of your issues, then it's definitely going to be happening during the teen years. And as far as being flexible and like what you said, psychological flexibility being that ability to, um, I'm not going to get your words perfectly right, but how I made sense of it was just like being in the moment and recognize you're having an emotional experience and staying present enough to make a choice about responding versus reacting and keeping those values in mind, keeping the long-term vision in mind in those moments, which is easier said than done. Yeah. Absolutely. So psychological flexibility is very much about having a clear sense of what, if we're talking about parenting, what type of parent, what type of parent do I want to be? And, and getting really clear on if I, if I am someone were like videotaping me and they were to play that videotape (laughs) and I would feel, and I would feel proud about how I parented, what would I be doing? And that's actually very personal, you know, just sort of like your favorite color may be blue and mine may be green. Mm -hmm. The way, the type of parent, the green type of parent that I want to be is any, isn't any better than the blue parent, you know, but it's personal and chosen by me, like, like a favorite color. And Mm -hmm. that ultimately what happens when, when we're parenting is that we get caught, we get hooked. So sort Mm -hmm. of like a, like a fish that's swimming down a stream, if it gets hooked by a hook, it gets pulled off in a direction that it doesn't want to be headed. Mm-hmm. And so what hooks us? We get hooked by strong emotions and we either get completely entangled in those emotions or maybe we try and avoid those emotions, right? Or we get hooked by our thoughts. We can get hooked by our self-stories, so our beliefs about ourselves or our beliefs about our children or our beliefs from our past that come to visit us in the present that we're rigid around. And when we're hooked, we tend to move away from that image of that parent that we'd want to be that we'd feel proud of, right? So with ACT, what we do is we teach these six core processes that help you be able to 
continue to stay aligned with that being that type of parent that you want to be in the moments where it matters most. And the six core processes are sort of like sides of a Rubik's cube Mm -hmm. and that they interact with each other and they influence each other. I can kind of list them off for you and give examples of, of them, but yeah. Okay. So I'll list them off and then we could talk about maybe specific examples, especially with teens, but the six core processes are being present. So that should sound familiar. And they do that a lot in DBT being present acceptance, which is opening up and allowing for all the stuff that shows up under your skin cognitive diffusion, which is a way of responding to your thoughts and not getting entangled in your thoughts, but actually getting a little space from your thoughts. It's a little mm-hmm. different than changing thoughts, but uh, we can talk about that. It's it's diffusing your thoughts, getting space mm-hmm. from your thoughts. We also have uh, values work, which is getting clear on what matters to you and how you want to be in the world. And then we also have perspective taking, which is incredibly helpful with teens being able to take other people's perspectives, not just your own, but also take perspective on your own self story. Mm -hmm. And then finally committed action, which is really based in behavioral psychology of how do you make committed action, take action towards the type of person that you want to be? What are the specific behaviors that you would be doing? And then how do you reinforce yourself in those daily habits so that you continue them over time and they're sustainable? So those are the six core processes that together build your psychological flexibility as a parent. Awesome. I let's dig into them. So, I mean, I think that some, and I, as I listen to you, I think I'm thinking two things. I'm thinking how powerful for parents and, you know, in our role, but also what powerful modeling for our teens when we can be explicit about the work that we're doing on ourselves. You know, like I'm thinking, especially that values and who do I want to be in the world? You know, I, it's interesting during the teen years, that question is either really powerful or really scary. You know, I had a teenager when she was younger who a question like that would have been really triggering because it would have felt so big, you know, like, who do I want to be in the world? And is there a right answer to this? And, you know, it's too much for me to think about. And then I've got another kid who it's like, oh, yeah, let's dig into that. I want to talk about that. So it's really interesting to think about putting these processes over the top of our teen's in their journey of becoming young adults. But let's just start at the very top and talk a little bit about presence and each of the things and what parents can do to strengthen these each of these muscles. Sure. So being present is, you know, we think about mindfulness and there's that's very kind of hot topic in popular culture. With ACT, it's not as much necessarily having to have a mindfulness practice or a meditation practice, although I personally find those very valuable. It's about being present with your eyes open in your life where it matters most. So if a child is coming up to you and it's clear that they care about something and Mm -hmm. whether it's they care about telling you about the video game that they're doing or whether they care about, you know, something that they're fighting with somebody about being present is showing, you know, in that moment, opening up to this, this, what's a meaningful moment between you and your child. Mm. What What's interesting is oftentimes I think with parents, we're just so caught up in doing mind and getting to the next thing that we miss out on the moments. Right. Oh yeah. And, and we're also, you know, we're also caught up on our own phones. Right. So, yep. One of the things that I, I, one of the exercises that I'll often do with folks around being present is an exercise called one eye in and one eye out. And it's important to have, you know, you start with sort of two eyes in of being present in your own self, right? Mm -hmm. So what's happening in my own body? What sensations do I notice in my own body? Uh, what, What emotions do I have? What needs do I have in my own self? So two eyes in. And sometimes as a parent, we, we aren't so present with ourselves. We're, we're quite sure. disembodied, right? And so yeah. pausing to be present with yourself and check doing that sort of embodiment check-in and that emotional check-in. And we can also be so involved in our own stuff that sometimes we forget to have two eyes out, right? To see what's happening in the world around us. And so mm-hmm. there'll be times when I'll be really, you know, working on something on my computer and a kid will show me something. I'll be like, uh-huh, but I'm not really present. Yeah. So Oh yeah, we can all relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so we can practice two eyes out, you know, paying attention to looking at our children in the eyes. That's mm-hmm. a lost art that we all could practice more of, like looking at our kids in the eye, paying attention to what's important to our kids, what matters to them, what's going on in the world around us. But then ultimately the being present practice is, can I have one eye in mm-hmm. while I also have one eye out? Can I stay connected to myself as a parent, what's happening in my own body, my own needs, aware and present, while also staying connected to the world around me? So that's mm-hmm. a great being present exercise. And you can just do it throughout your day. Like one eye in, one eye out, what's happening right now, having that pause. And sometimes it's helpful to go two eyes in and two eyes out and then hold both. Oh, I like that. And that makes me think about specifically with teens, I think, Rigidity can show up when we're in fear mind, when we slide right into worst case scenario. And to me, that's a place where this presence would be really helpful because, you know, listening to what our child has done or what they're planning on doing or what they want to do while also noticing like, oh, yeah, here come all of those fears and worst case scenarios. I'm not going to let this be, like you said, the hook that pulls me out of the flow and out of connection to my child and how powerful it is when we can be aware of the both and there, right? Being with the child and with the situation while also recognizing what's happening inwardly for us. Yes. What you're alluding to there is one of the real hooks for us, which is related to another process of perspective taking. We get so hooked by the stories that our mind tells us. Ooh, and yes, yeah. we do. <laughs> so, so the future forecasting, that is something that I think parents and evolutionarily we're designed to do this, right? We want a future forecast because sure. we want to protect our kids, right? But more often than not, that future forecasting is well, what research shows is that we tend to predict things as being more negative than they're going to be. And we also predict that our kids are not going to handle them as well as they do handle them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So for sure. For sure. For oftentimes, sure, for sure. Yeah. you know, we'll, we'll get caught in that self story and, you know, you're caught in a self story when it starts with things like I always, I never, I am, I can't, or mm-hmm you always, you never, you are, you can't, Mm -hmm. right? Those types of statements that are quite rigid and have this sense of inflexibility to them. So with perspective taking, it can be another one of the act processes. We can start to get more playful with our self stories and even the stories that we create with our kids Mm -hmm. by just starting to realize that if we put a little sometimes after that sentence, like, Mm -hmm. You know, like I am anxious when blah, 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 sometimes, not always. And mm-hmm. being able to look for those exceptions and see things from sort of a fresh perspective or point of view, ultimately seeing things from your child's perspective mm-hmm. is also one of the healthiest ways to build a bond with your child and also get you out of your own head. Yeah, this came up just yesterday in my Facebook group. A parent dropped in and was really worried and concerned about her young teen's use of social media and not following the rules. And, you know, those of us that weren't raised with phones and social media have, you know, we have a lot of fears around that. And one of the things that I spoke into in the thread was how powerful it can be, you know, when there's tension around something our kids are doing to start, you know, asking being curious, asking questions, finding out from the child's mouth, like, tell me more about this. So like you talk to people on Snapchat that you haven't actually met in real life, you know, what is your vetting process? What, how, you know, how do you, what are the deal breakers for conversation with strangers versus you cannot talk to anyone you don't know on Snapchat, which by the way, they're, that's, I mean, I get it. And it's how they're social, like, it's like going to a party. You know, it's it's so, and I think for me, what I notice when I drop into curiosity is I start to realize like, oh, my kids actually have some tools. Like they're not completely flailing in the world waiting to be, you know, abducted and sex trafficked. They, you know, there are things that they hold as like, okay, this is a deal breaker. This is a red flag to me. And I won't know that unless I'm engaging in conversation. So I feel like that would slide into this perspective taking that would support yes. the perspective taking process too. those curious questions. And yeah, it's, it does a couple of things, what you're describing and you're so spot on. First of all, the brain develops how it is used. So 
when you are problem solving for your child or you are giving them the answer already or you've figured it out and told them the rule, you are stealing that problem solving from them. And we actually want our kids to learn how to discern like what what is healthy Mm -hmm. what is not where are boundaries and they're developing that skill set and they're developing those brain areas especially in the prefrontal cortex around problem solving so we don't want to steal that from them you know it's sort of like i remember with like you'd watch them when they're five years old and they're putting the puzzle together and you just want to put that puzzle piece in oh man yes yes like just turn it (laughs) sit on sit on your hands to not put the puzzle piece in for them but now we're talking about things that have much higher stakes, yeah. right? We're not talking yeah. about puzzle piecing. We're talking about your face on social media where someone yeah. can take advantage of you, right? So we have to do a little bit of sitting on our hands as parents and let them problem solve. Mm-hmm. But this other thing that you're doing there that's really important is linked to another process, which is values. Because one of the things that I struggle with, so I have boys in our household mm-hmm. is, um, you know, I'm a homesteader. You can imagine how I feel about video games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, go climb a tree. Why are you, why are you on video games? Right. Yeah. But I'm guessing your brand, yeah. I'm guessing yeah, you got what's on brand. brand for you. you. You got it. Right. <laughs> I'm like making sourdough bread. Why are you in that dark room? <laughs> so what my whole process has been is also around being able to look at what is it that they actually really care about mm-hmm. in doing that thing rather than coming yeah. at it as I despise that thing. Coming at it with, like you described, curiosity of tell me why it matters so much to you. Mm -hmm. You tend to light up. And when I actually did that, and I've done that with my sons, I learn about things like they care about problem solving. They care about the relationships they have on these video games. Mm -hmm. They actually really do enjoy the um, sort of the aspect of it's kind of hard and and they're working towards mastery at something. And when you do that, when you start to understand what it is that they care about, what is their intrinsic motivation, then you can start to water that intrinsic motivation and you're on the same team towards Mm -hmm. something, right? Mm -hmm. What What actually, what's recommended for something like technology use is to sit down and play the video game with your kid. Mm-hmm. Sit down and look at their phone and ask them, rather than look at their phone and be like, why are you on that? Ask them, show me all the things that you love on here, because yeah. then you're building the bond and actually you're opening the door for them to have conversations with you when they are struggling about stuff. Yeah. More often than not, you know, with um, with technology use, I was actually just interviewing uh, uh William Stixred, who's a neuropsychologist and wrote Yes, the book. I was listening Dr. to that Bruno. podcast. I love yeah. them. I love yeah. him and They're Ned. So great. Oh my gosh, They're so great. So more often what they said is that when they ask a room of ninth graders, uh, you know, who in here is using too much technology, everyone in their room raises the hand. Like the mm-hmm. kids already know. And part of our job as parents is aren't is not to tell them that you're doing too much, but actually to ask the questions to help them come to some of those conclusions. And that's building values. Their kids don't have their values figured out. They're they're in the process of that. But mm-hmm. we can, as parents, by living out our values of like, I'm here to like help my kid flourish and thrive and develop into a healthy adult, we can operate in a way that helps them start to define and understand their intrinsic motivation and values. And I would like to say out loud, parents that are listening, everybody's working on limits with technology. So when your child says nobody else has limits on their phone, it is just not true. So don't get hooked right? Don't get pulled out of the flow because your kid is in, you know, in this denial of, but nobody else has to do this, you know, just let that go and move on and put up the guardrails. Yeah. And listen, I would say, and problem solve with them around limits. Mm-hmm. For sure. You know, it, it, like I would ask them, like, when do you know that you are full? If, you know, yeah. what are the things that are important to you that you want to do in your life? And how, and there's, this is where, I'll go back to ACT again. There's another process in here that's really important, which is (laughs) accepting and allowing the discomfort of that. Because we have such an urge to just fix our kids and set them straight. There's actually a term in uh, motivational interviewing called the writing reflex, which is to set set our kids right. But 
the nature of that is that the more that we try and set them right, the more likely we're going to get resistance back. And this happens mm. with kids. It also happens with substance use, right? So I know this is a therapist. If I'm arguing one side, the other person's going to argue the other side. So our job as parents is also to be able to open up and allow for some of that sort of un- like just discomfort. This is yeah. uncomfortable stuff. And actually what's interesting around discomfort is that it's also associated with with meaning. So when you look at fo- like you look at happiness, there's there's a pleasure-filled life and there's a meaningful life and a meaningful life is not necessarily a pleasureful life. So mm. meaning can involve sitting in and allowing the discomfort of parenting because it's in the service of something that you care about. Notice it in your body, breathe into it, make space for it. Here it is. This is my anxiety around having a conversation with my kids about sex or about race, or Mm -hmm. am I not going to have those conversations because they're uncomfortable? Or am I going to step into them and allow that discomfort to be inside of me, make space for it, breathe into it, be willing to have it because it's in the service of something that I deeply care about. Yeah. Does acceptance also with ACT, is it also around, you know, I've had, I've been held, my feet held to the fire by my oldest around being an acceptance of her separate journey and just like recognizing where I'm holding a narrative that is my narrative that, you know, isn't necessarily the narrative of the life that she's meant to follow. And um, God bless her. She's been a teacher for me in letting go and being in mm-hmm. acceptance of that. Does that fit here? Yeah. In, in ACT, acceptance is very much of what you are accepting underneath your own skin. So mm-hmm. accepting the own difficult thoughts that may show up around mm-hmm. that, accepting your own emotions or sensations or memories that show up around that. And there's a real distinction in ACT, which maps onto DBT as well, which mm-hmm. is you don't have to approve of something to accept it. And those are different things. You do not have to approve of, I don't know, the fact that we're whatever, wearing masks in stores, you don't really mm-hmm. like it, but you can accept it, right? right? And that there's there's a real distinction there because sometimes we think of acceptance as liking something or we think of it as um, resigning ourselves, mm-hmm. but rather acceptance is willingness and openness for something to be so mm-hmm. that you have a little bit more wiggle room to be able to, to move in your life. And non-acceptance is what sort of makes you less flexible and less able to operate in the world, right? So if you're constantly fighting the feelings you have around whatever's happening with your daughter, you're just not going to be able to be as effective as a parent. Oh, God, no. It was deeply, deeply distressing. <laughs> but the minute I said, okay, this is where we're at and I'm going to be in acceptance of this and step back. And re- like, it was like the difference between having a fist, you know, like I'm, I'm fisting my hand right now and just like opening it up. It was yeah. like, okay, it was really powerful. So talk to me and how does this move into, I'm guessing there's a relationship here with cognitive diffusion and acceptance. So talk more about cognitive diffusion. I love those two words together. Yeah, the the irony of cognitive diffusion is that it's a made up word, which is perfect for our thoughts because half of our thoughts just don't make sense. And for a long time, cognitive behavioral therapy was all about changing thoughts, identifying mm-hmm. maladaptive thoughts, and then changing thoughts. And if you've ever had a conversation with someone trying to tell them that their thoughts are irrational and the response that you've gotten is like, what do you, you know, the same is true when we try and do that to ourselves. That actually yeah. there's a good amount of research dating back to the 80s. There's a researcher named Wagner who used to do this. He did this study called the white bear experiment where you tell people, whatever you do, just don't think about a white bear. Mm. And the more that you try and not think about the white bear, the stronger that thought is, right? We've all done that when we tried to like not eat carbs, right? The more you yeah. try and not eat carbs, the more you think about bagels all day. So <laughs> true that story. Is, that is a true story. I don't know where I got that one. Um, so that is the same thing with our thoughts. Suppressing our thoughts actually causes them to rebound. But We also have a lot of unhelpful thoughts, right? So in ACT, what we do is we get a little bit of space from them. And you can do this exercise with me if you like imagine what's an unhelpful thought that gets in the way of you being an effective parent. Um, Well, there's so many, Diana. Uh, 
they're not, you know, doing well enough in school. Yeah. Every parent has that, right? right My kids right. are not doing well enough in school. They don't my, care my, enough. They don't care <laughs> enough about school. My kids, yeah. my kids don't care enough about school. Okay. So we can imagine you're going about your day and that thought is written on your hand. Mm-hmm. And I want you to take your hand. Imagine that thought is written across your hand and hold it right up to your eyes. So that's covering your eyes and even touching your eyelashes. Okay. Okay. How well would you be able to see your child if you had this, if you were completely entangled in this thought, my child is not doing well enough in school. How well can you see your child? Right. I can't see anything but this thought. Right. Well, actually, and can you even see the thought if it were written on your hand? No, it would be blurry. Kind of blurry, right? You're just so entangled in it. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to slowly move your hand away from your face and put your hand at your side. Now, if your child came up to you and they were talking to you about their homework assignment and they maybe they were struggling with it, how well would you be able to see your child? I can completely see them. They're okay. right there in front of me. And how well would you be able to see this thought of they're not doing well enough in school? Yeah, that's not even, uh, it's not really on my radar. It's not on your radar, but it's still on your hand. It's like, yep, is, it's did there. I, cut, I didn't cut your hand off. And it if didn't. you wanted to, you could go over and look at it and you could decide whether or not it was helpful for you in this moment or not. Yeah. Oh, I love so, that space. Space. And I didn't tie your hand behind your back. No, nope. I didn't spend a lot of time trying to think about an alternative thought to write on your hand, or I didn't erase it from your hand, right? But what I did is just gave you a little bit of space from it. And that's mm. what cognitive diffusion is. It's being able to, to first just notice when you're entangled in your thoughts and you're believing your thoughts to be true. And when believing your thoughts are true are getting in the way of you engaging in the world in the way that you want to, mm. because when your child is struggling in school, it's really helpful for you to be able to be with your child as opposed mm-hmm. to completely consumed by a thought of you always or you're not or, you you know, those sort of belief systems. So cognitive diffusion is noticing your thoughts, getting space from your thoughts and being able to freely orient yourself towards the present moment. Now, sometimes there's thoughts that are more helpful for us than others. And, you know, I had, I, when my twenties, I studied with Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Buddhist and mm. master. And I went to Plum Village to, to study with him. And one of the teachings that he teaches is of around- Of course you're a homesteader. Jeez, come on. Yeah. <laughs> of course. It, it's the brand, right? Yes. Oh, on okay. brand. I'm so on brand. But, uh, so, but, but I, did, I, I did study with him in my 20s. And That's one of the awesome. things that he teaches is around watering seeds. Mm-hmm. And he talks about the, that your mind, he was sort of like a pioneer in neuroplasticity, really, because he talks about- the mind as having seeds in it, like the seeds Mm -hmm. of your thoughts and where you place your attention are the seeds that are going to grow. So if you place a lot of attention on either trying to get rid of thoughts or being entangled in unhelpful thoughts, those are the thoughts that are going to get stronger. But you can also turn your attention to more helpful thoughts. Ultimately, you're the waterer, like you are the gardener of your own mind. Mm -hmm. And what we do know about current day modern neuroplasticity is that our brain does wire up based on where we place our attention. And so does our kid's brain. So we get to choose where we are placing our attention in our lives and in our own minds and Mm -hmm. developing this observer self that can get a little bit of space from your thoughts, not believe your thoughts to be hundred percent true. Using this cognitive diffusion skill is incredibly helpful. Mm. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Unsticking it.
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask-Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. You know, all of this is reminding me like it's about interrupting patterns and interrupting habits. So when we come into committed action, talk about committed action and how that ties all of this together. Yeah. So when when Debbie Sorensen, who was my friend first, and then we started this podcast and now we're co-authors, we wrote the chapter on committed action. We called it falling on purpose. Mm. And uh, we called it falling on purpose actually, because it traces back to one of the co-founders of ACT, Kelly Wilson. And I'll say that a lot of the ideas that I'm talking about today are not like Diana came up with these. This is from years and years of research um, of ACT researchers and co-founders like Kelly Wilson and Steve Hayes and Kirk Strassel that came up with ACT many years ago. But we called it falling on purpose because Kelly Wilson in a workshop that I did with him many years ago, stood up in the workshop and he, he did a, um, he was really into yoga and he did a tree pose. And he said, what if falling were part of the pose? Mm -hmm. Because actually when you are in any kind of balance pose in yoga, you are never really fully in alignment. You are always making micro adjustments, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You never really are like, okay, I'm there. I've got it right. There's just constant little micro falls. And then when you're first learning, it's big falls. Mm -hmm. So with committed action, it's first just being open to falling, that that is part of the part of the practice of creating new behaviors and new skills, taking risks and being willing. And then the second part of it is sort of the behavioral science around how do we set up habits in our lives that are lined up with the values that we want to grow, right? So back to those watering of seeds again, Mm -hmm. and that the habit formation and the behavioral science around habit formation is is really kind of basic, which is make them small, Mm -hmm. make them repeated patterns that you do a lot and reinforce them so that when you are doing things like I, I want to, for me, I have habits around my technology use and my kids. Mm-hmm. And I really want to put my technology down and look my kids in the eye when I see them. Mm-hmm. This is actually a habit that I'm not that great at all the time. Right. I'll be so engrossed in texting something that I'll be like, okay, hold on a minute, but I'm so into this thing, right? So when I'm creating a new habit, a committed action around that, first I get clear on like, okay, why? What are my values here? My values around, I want to see my kids because my my kids are sunsets and they are leaving, you know, Mm -hmm. they're on their way out. And so I want to appreciate the sunset. I also want to model for them the behavior that I want to to them Mm -hmm. to have in their life. When they have phones someday, I want them to put their phone down and look me in the eye. And then I also really um, just want to show them that they matter more to me. Yes. Whatever's in here does not hold a scent to you. Mm-hmm. So creating a new habit around that is digging deep and first just identifying the deep core value. Like what, what are the things that matter to me around doing this? And then what you do is you set up your little loop. So the habit loop is a cue, a behavior and a reward. Mm-hmm. The cue is when a child is around me and I'm on my phone, <laughs> I'm going to do the behavior of put the phone down, look the kid in the eyes. Mm -hmm. The reward is I'm going to enjoy the moment of looking at my kid. And I'm also going to remind myself, this is a values-based move. Good job, Diana. Mm -hmm. Like a little, you know, as BJ Fogg, who's like a, um, he's a habit guru at uh, Stanford. He does a little fist pump, like, yeah, I got this. So committed action is about setting up habit loops like that and setting up behaviors in your life that 
today, if I were to do that every day, whether it's around my exercise habits or my sunscreen habits or my phone habits, if I did that every day for the next 30 years, I'd probably be in a place that I feel pretty good about and that it's aligned with my values. I love that. And I feel like one of the things that we learned in DBT that has really stuck with stuck with me that fits here is that commitment to willingness versus willfulness, because it's all good when we're trying to shift a behavior and work on that cognitive diffusion and work on a new habit loop. It's all good when it's when everybody when when we're not super triggered. Right. It's another thing when, you know, and it's I call it you know, it's the Olympics, the Olympics shows up and you're really in it with your teen, you know, are you willing to show up differently in that moment? Cause that is the moment that's when, that's when it matters the most. And so I love this committed action. And I just wanted to highlight the committed action is also about being willing. And I'm really appreciate Diana that you mentioned, like, this is, this is a learning area for you. This you know, something that you're committed to and not always easy because we're all in the practice all the time and it's not about being perfect. So I want listeners to hear that. Like it's not do these six things perfectly and life will be so easy because you're also, (laughs) you know, interacting and mingling with all these other humans that are making their own choices on how to act and behave. And, but really it's about just being willing to try it on you know, and being willing to try it on often enough to where you start to see the difference that it can make in your life. And I really just appreciate all of all these six steps that you've highlighted for us. And I think the seventh, and this is actually what was the first chapter of the book that we wrote on ACT, on the ACT Daily Journal, is compassion. So that's the big umbrella over all of this. And it's actually really uh, compassion being three things, being able to give compassion to yourself, having self-compassion. So there's lots of times that we're not going to do our habit or our behavior or committed action exactly how we Mm -hmm. hoped or planned. Having compassion in those moments when we are flooded by our emotions and actually having compassion for ourselves helps us regulate our emotions, helps down-regulate our threat system, down-regulate our drive system, that compassionate mind. But having also the other two aspects of compassion are having compassion for others and having compassion for our kids. Sometimes I can really shift my whole nervous system when I can actually see the vulnerability of my kids and Mm -hmm. that they're, you know, they're doing the best that they can in the circumstances that they're in. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that looks like a hot mess in our household. Mm -hmm. But when I step into compassion for them and I just sort of, I'm like tenderized, (laughs) like they tenderize Mm -hmm. me. Right. And then the third part of compassion or the third flow of compassion, and this comes from um, Paul Gilbert's work, who's compassion focused therapy founder. But the third part is around receiving compassion. And that's also another thing that I think that parents have a lot of hard time with because we kind of have these egos around we're supposed to be good parents and we don't want other people to really see what it looks like, you know, or we Mm -hmm. think that we're supposed to kind of have this figured out. But what I learned more than anything during COVID was I just need other people to help me out sometimes. <laughs> I can't yeah. do it all. And uh, other parents that were struggling too, and just sharing about those, about our struggles, that that was actually the thing that really kind of bolstered me during a, what's been a really painful time to be a parent. And I would say, actually, what some of the Stress in America survey has shown is that parents are the one of the most highly impacted groups in terms of mental health. So, we see that you know the majority of Americans are saying that, that COVID was a very stressful time, but for parents, it was even more mm-hmm. stressful. And uh, even just some of the strategies, there was a stat that I was reading around like, like drinking when 23% of Americans reported that their drinking habits went up, but 67% of parents of school-age children <laughs> reported an increase. Wow. So like, like it's hard, it's hard. <laughs> um, so you're not alone. 
Yeah. And um, that that's where, you know, having compassion for ourselves, having compassion for our kids, and then being able to receive compassion can really also be incredibly helpful in navigating some of these, these skills and so psychological flexibility. Oh my gosh, this was so, I could just, I'm looking at the time I could talk to you for another hour about all of this. It's so interesting and it just aligns so much with so much that's been talked about on this podcast. So I just really appreciate you for sharing, you know, both like the academics of all of this, but also your own personal experience and your personal practices. Is there anything else that you want to leave the listeners with before we wrap up? Um, I think I'll just leave them with a, with a saying that my friend Debbie will often say to me that is just really soothing, which is, just to go easy on yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. This is um, this is a really, really difficult time, yeah. especially to be a parent of a teen. Yeah. Teenagers are being hit hard. And go easy on yourself and go a little easier on your kids. Mm, thank you. Thank you for that reminder. What does joyful courage mean to you? Joyful courage to me is stepping out of my comfort zone into unknown places with an open mind and uh, doing that in parenting, but also really doing that more and more in my personal life. As I've uh, mm -hmm. crested 40 and I'm on the other side, I love the the young quote of you spend the first 40 of years, 40 years of your life building up your ego and then the second, the last 40, breaking it down. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really interested in dismantling it. And so joyful courage is doing things like taking a dance class when I've never mm -hmm. danced in my life or, um, you know, just playing, playing more in my life and taking more time uh, to do things that feel intrinsically rewarding to me. Mm, I love that. Where can people find more about you and your work, your podcast, your book? Where can we send them? Sure. Go to drdianahill.com. And I have a ton of meditations, talks, podcasts I've led there with really interesting folks, leaders in the field of psychology. And I also have a fun body-based practices for ACT of like sort of these six ways oh, cool. to really embody ACT that you can download there as well. So that's all at drdianahill.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Thanks again for listening, everybody. I hope you loved that conversation as much as I loved being inside of it. So, so, so good. If you feel inspired and you haven't already, please do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. We're working really hard to stand out and make a big impact on families around the globe. Your review helps the Joyful Courage podcast to be seen by even more parents. Thank you so much. Also, follow me on all the social places, Joyful underscore Courage on Instagram, Joyful Courage on Facebook. I also have a private group for parents of teens called Joyful Courage for Parents of Teens. Come join us. Come be a part of the conversation. I love connecting with you on social media. Have a beautiful, beautiful day. I'll see you next week. Real truth alert. Pregnancy, birth, and having a baby isn't all sunshine and rainbows. I wish it were. But the reality is that many people struggle and suffer through this time without the right help or even knowing what they're dealing with. I'm perinatal psychologist Dr. Katayun Kayani, also known as Dr. Kat. My podcast, Mom and Mind, aims to shine a light on the difficult reality that so many hopeful and new parents experience and raise the volume on how we can better support mental health which is a big part of our overall health. Episodes include personal stories from people who have healed through things like pregnancy and postpartum anxiety, depression, PTSD, and so much more. I also talk with specialists and experts who explain and educate on these conditions. All of this to support parents to know that they are not alone, that healing is possible, and there are resources that can help you today. Listen into Mom and Mind and walk with me through the world of perinatal mental health.